1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Impact Boom. My name's Michaela and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today we're speaking with Leah Heist. Leah is a Melbourne-based designer working at the nexus of design, health and technology. Her practice traverses device, service and experience and her process is deeply collaborative, working with experts from nanotechnology, engineering and health services through to manufacturing. Her health technology projects include jewelry to administer insulin through the skin for diabetics, bio-signal sensing for emergency jewelry, and swallowable devices to detect disease. Facet, the world's first modular hearing aid that Leah designed with Blamey Saunders hears, won the 2018 Good Design Award and the 2018 CSIRO Design Innovation Award. In total, she has won five Good Design Awards, and her design work is part of the Museum's Victoria Heritage Collection. Leah's work has been exhibited at the Melbourne Museum, Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane, and at other galleries locally and globally. She teaches through RMIT's Master of Design Futures and the Interior Design Honours Program. Her teaching practice traverses embedded practice in cancer care, and transdisciplinary design focused on health sector innovation. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss how Leah believes human-centered design can be used to create positive social and health impacts, along with some case studies and real examples. We'll get some insights and thoughts from Leah on the importance of empathy throughout the design process, and what she thinks the future of health product design holds. And along the way, Leah is sure to share some inspirational initiatives and tips that you could perhaps apply to your own designs and
2: projects.
1: Leah, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Michaela.
2: It's very great to be here.
1: So to kick things off, Leah, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you into the world of healthcare product design?
2: So my background is in, uh, I had a communication theory degree and then I did interior design. And after that, I did a master's uh, through the Spatial Information Architecture Laboratory at RMIT. And as part of that, I designed garments to sense and transmit heartbeat over distance for people who are, like all of us, having these terrible long-distance friendships and relationships and really kind of suffering from um, not having good communication. And um, so my empathy vests and um, etherbeat garments were really around – whether we could have an embodied experience of empathising while we were also on the phone. So that was my master's. And then after that, um, I guess one of the pivotal experiences in my career was being artist-in-residence with Nanotechnology Victoria in 2007 and 2008. And that was when I started to focus on technologies for healthcare with the scientists at NanoVic. I, um, I worked on diabetes jewellery and also on a range of vessels and jewellery pieces to remove arsenic from drinking water for people who um, live in countries where arsenic mm-hmm. is prevalent. So the amazing thing about being in NanoVic was that they had these like 40 extraordinary technologies that I was able to work across and I felt a really strong emotional pull towards the healthcare technologies.
1: Uh, you've essentially specialized in you know the wearable technology and and won several good design awards for those devices so from the health jewelry to the recent self fit modular hearing aid how do you see this world of wearable tech evolving and its ability to create positive social impact
2: i'm really passionate about the role of human centered design in the development of wearable health technology however i'm also realistic about what the common market is doing in that space. Mm. And so we have a lot of wearable health technologies that are ostensibly for the worried well. So lots of biofeedback devices and bracelets and trinkets that you can wear to reinforce the fact that you're actually a well and healthy person. Yeah. And what I'm really interested in is the people that are well and healthy, the people that need the monitoring, that don't have a choice about monitoring basically, so that need to either... Um have diagnostic technologies, drug delivery technologies um, that they have to wear on a, a daily basis, but they have very little control and say in what those devices look like.
1: Yeah. so in terms of understanding the difference in market, how important
2: is that for you? I think it's um it's incredibly important to me that I'm focusing on the emotional needs of people that have to use wearable health technologies and whether, whether that is um, devices for disability, Um, sensory augmentation devices. So if we think about, you know, for instance, the hearing aid, you know, that's a space that I feel very passionate about because untreated hearing loss leads to dementia and Alzheimer's and isolation and loneliness. But still, many people put off using hearing aids because they feel the stigma of age or they feel embarrassed by them.
1: Yeah. Uh, Would you be able to share how you use human-centred design and how it can be used to create positive social impact and how you use it in that
2: process? So human-centred design is such a big area. And it's also a big buzzword. Big buzzword at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so empathy is a really big buzzword. Human centered design is a big buzzword. So, um, but to me, they're more than buzzwords. They're ways of living and ways of practicing. And so what I didn't mention about my eight masters is that my masters was in empathy and in what happens in the brain neurologically when you empathize with another person. And so that kind of knowledge, which is what What is empathy really about? Really going deep into these things is quite critical to the way that I practice. So in terms of human-centred design, the space that I've carved out for myself is that I have a very particular way of practicing. Um, And that's really the foundation of the PhD that I'm finishing at the moment Is is really how can we humanise wearable health technologies through human-centred design processes. And I have my three ways of doing this that human-centered designers need to be at the table with the engineers, with the mechanical engineers, the signal processing engineers, throughout the duration of technology development.
1: So that role of the designer in the entire design and product development journey, including manufacturing and, and, and modelling it, how should that process evolve to ensure that the consumer or the customer or the core user is considered the whole time through that end-to-end process?
2: So the only way that I've come across and that I've lived in the last few years is that if you have a human-centered designer at the table for the bulk of technology design, then they are representing the emotional needs of users. Because otherwise what happens is that you hand over your models, you hand over your drawings to the engineering team. And I love engineers. I work with engineers all the time. But then a whole lot of decisions are made that are about efficacy, um, cleanliness, cleanability, whatever it might be, design for manufacturing. And it's like, you know, often those decisions will be made and they will have impacts on the human experience of the product. And with the designer not at the table, it really means that those things just go through. And by the end of the design process, we have a technology that doesn't necessarily gel with its user group. So in that
1: sense, the designer is essentially the advocate for the user and that human-centered designer
2: throughout the whole process. That's right, yeah. So you are there, and what I, I think of it as, you're there to bring the emotional experience of users to the table so that at the same time as considering signal processing strength, we're also considering feelings of embarrassment and shame or feelings of you know joy and wonder. So we're bringing all of that stuff to the table and it's becoming part of the design, the design decisions.
1: Throughout the whole process, so gathering it at the start and ensuring that it's sort of reiterated every stage along the way. Yep. Excellent. And your work as a designer and as a facilitator on the projects that you've worked on, what are some of those challenges that you typically experience and and how do you work around them?
2: There are lots of challenges in working in interdisciplinary teams and so the teams that I work with, so the most recent team was on the design of Facet, and that was with uh, electronic engineers, mechanical engineers, signal processing experts, audiologists, um, marketing people, all sorts of people were in that room. Yep. And I had a seat at the table for the, for 37 weeks of the design process. Wow. Which is amazing. Yep. Yeah. And that's what, what, you know, makes such a great outcome is that we work together from the beginning all the way through technology development rather than just six weeks at the beginning. Yep. Um, and so every single day there are complexities, and what those things tend to centre on is that people have ideas about how things should work, you know, how they should look, how they should feel, how technology should function. Um, and the way that I help to find consensus in those interdisciplinary groups is that I have an iterative design process. So I call it in, in my research, it's the power of prototyping. Mm-hmm. And so not just as a, you know, let's, let's make a model and move on. Actually, I'm prototyping every single week and those prototypes are more than just material artifacts. They are, um, we think of them as boundary objects between disciplines and they enable people to, to come together and make decisions and move on. And and get over things, whatever the the hurdles are. Mm-hmm. We look at the model and we try it on. We put it behind the ear and we and we talk about it, and then we make a decision and we move on. And um, so we call them small wins. Yeah. Yep. In the design process.
1: In that sense, the process or the the prototype becomes a language mm-hmm. between those different and enables that process to move forward.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a language. The other thing that's interesting yeah. about prototypes. So. Um, worked on a project called Smart Heart, which is a necklace to replace the cardiac ulcer monitor. And we did a whole lot of woven prototypes. And these operated as a language form between engineers and weavers. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked around the prototype. I think of them as like they're like a campfire. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we come together around the prototype. And also the prototype's really powerful for working with um, users. So what we do is we, you know, I share the prototypes with my users in focus groups. And they try it on, they put it in their handbags, they put it in their pockets, and I observe that, and they emotionally get really involved and invested in the design process through those prototypes so rather than it being a coded language or something
1: online a physical tangible object to to get past those barriers essentially
2: yep were
1: there any other essential tools for design thinkers within the health industry that you think design thinkers could utilize and those sort of breaking down those assumptions about people who suffer disability or health concerns
2: yes I have many thoughts on these (laughs) things. Um, So the other kind of key tenet of my practice and way of working is about emotional engagement, and that's going beyond the user interview as a way to observe people interacting with technologies or analysing habits and behaviours and then compressing that information into, you know, like journey maps or customer experience, Yeah, empathy, mapping, Yeah, so all that stuff's fine, but what I find with that is that it tends to squeeze the emotional content out of things. But I think if we think of, um, I think of these emotional engagements, so what I tend to do is that I um, convene focus groups with small groups of technology users, and I think of those as an opportunity to understand and engage with the emotional experience that people have in technologies. Yeah. So it's not about you know, function and form as much, but it's about really empathising and spending time trying to understand the difficult stuff. And the difficult stuff is the, you know, embarrassment, shame, stigma, difficulty, isolation, awkwardness. And if you can really spend the time listening and absorbing and understanding that information and then taking that into the design process, then you build, you know, you build a great reservoir of respect Yeah. And so what that means is that the users that have been in my interviews are really invested in the design process. And when it gets to the product launch, they're, they're as excited as you are because they were part of that process. So using that process is engaging with
1: the community and I guess utilizing that toolkit of empathy to, to break down the stigma.
2: Yeah, but I again, I'm really careful of empathy as a buzzword. No, I so, know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like really, but when true I,
1: understanding of that person's lived experience, essentially.
2: Yeah, and actually, the way the way that I do this is that I'm quite inspired by sensory ethnography, which is a yeah. book by Therapink, um, is, and I'm a spatial designer as well, but it's to think about the entire condition for engagement. And that goes down to, um, so we need to f- create an environment of, of comfort so that, so, um, you know, people laugh at me about this, but it's like, and that's about the smell, the olfactory, you know, the yep. smell of freshly brewed coffee, the yeah. kind of cakes, that they're not the crappy cakes, they're the good cakes that you get <laughs> from the show. <shelf. laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, that what's on the table, that people have something to play with and touch and to, to become involved in the design process, that they, that there aren't, you know there aren't flashing cameras around them. That there's not too much hierarchy. So whoever the the big company leaders are, that they leave the room. Yeah. And that you create this space of intimacy and sharing stories. Yeah. So do you find that you get the most
1: valuable feedback when people, I, I suppose, let down that wall and they're most vulnerable?
2: Yeah. And again, the power of prototypes. If you've got things that people can touch and hold and play with. So in my um, in my workshops, you know, it's all about sort of haptic and tactile engagement yeah. as a way to develop intimacy between myself and, mm-hmm. you know, participants. Um, But that also happens in the technology design space. You give people the agency to do what they want with the prototypes. Yeah. yeah and it's really lovely what happens. Yeah, true human behaviour. Yeah, as opposed to, you know, do this action. Yeah. And let me observe you doing that action. Yeah. Then there's no, there's no imagination in that. There's a, yeah. I just think if you can, if you can let people imagine the technology into their lives, yeah. You know, then the richness of the outcome. And then you're finding there. the innate
1: behaviours and what's natural to the person. Yep. yep. How have you seen the design industry and and health industry, especially wearables, transform over the years? And where do you see design and and Health technology be able to impact social innovation and social impact
2: into the future. Um, I feel like we have peaked in in this kind of diagnostic technologies for daily life type of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, and I I hope so because I feel like that's been a distraction in some ways from some of the really big things that yeah. we should be focusing on. Yeah, and so what I hope is that some emotional content starts to come into particularly wearable health technologies. So, that it's not just me saying it's really, really important how people feel about this. Because what we, conversations that I have with people that happen to have a disability, is that there seems to be an assumption made by big companies that if you have a disability, you no longer have any aesthetic. <laughs> you don't have any yeah, aesthetic. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the medical beige. Yeah, it's That's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, it's like, you know. You, you suddenly have an impairment, and we shall all have impairments in time. And and it's like aesthetics go out the window. Yeah. You know, as opposed to thinking, well, it's exactly the same person who has the same wants and needs and interests and you know and a sense of I- self identity and um and wanting to be engaged and connected to particular social groups. And this disability is just a part of them. It's an you know, ability, disability, whatever it is. Yeah. And and that we should be designing things that you know reflect people's sense of identity and sense of self. So that's where I really want things to go.
1: Yeah, into the future. So rather, yes, you've got the diagnostic. We know how well you are, or we can understand your disease inside out in terms of numerical data. But how do you, how do you then move forward into the technology of the lived experience and and ensuring that it's not impacting their daily routine in
2: that sense. That's right. And actually, in I've done quite a bit of research in aged care. Yeah. And I find it really interesting the way that people talk about the two different ways that people talk about things. So I always go into those aged care environments, and I'm interested in people's relationships with wearable technologies and people's relationships with jewellery. And the way that people talk about wearable technologies, you know, they say things like, oh, well, it's a bit clunky, but... You know, I guess you need to use it for about a falls monitor as opposed to, Oh, this is this amazing um, piece of jewelry that I love that belonged to my great grandmother yeah. and it makes me feel, you know, really, you know, warm the and warm. The meaning behind the, the artifact. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's very easy for us technologically now to combine those two things, but there's just not the corporate will.
1: What are some of the local or global initiatives that you've come across in in your work that you believe might be successfully tackling those problems um, whilst creating opportunities to provide social
2: and health benefits for the community? So there's a whole lot of really interesting projects that are happening across service device experience. Um, recently at the Good Design Awards, MELD won a, a fantastic award and recognition for their work with the Queensland Government, and that was about uh, really manifesting human-centred design across the whole of Q- Queensland Government. So all yep. of the decisions that are made um, go through this sort of human-centred design lens, which, you know, is really ambitious. Um, and then there's other um, – we're doing a whole lot of work uh, with Marty Bush uh, looking at end-of-life experience And and that's with um, Marius Foley through the Masters of Design Futures. And so we're looking at whether, you know, death as a design space, whether we can start to kind of open that up and think about ways that we can innovatively and creatively engage with end-of-life experience in a way that recognises people's whole-of-life contribution as they get to the end of life. Um, And similar work is being done in the UK and in America. So I think there's some really interesting kind of design projects that are looking at these really... Big, naughty issues. Very
1: heavy, stigmatised
2: issues. Yes, absolutely. And just the idea that designers can, we can address big, difficult issues in a human-centred, kind and empathetic way. We just need to break them down into lots of little tiny bits. So (laughs) the strategy of tackling the wicked, stigmatised problem is,
1: is, is being able to understand the empathy behind it.
2: Yeah, or oh, this it, this idea of the small win list for me. Yeah. You know? So that's a really cool. Why each tiny step? Yeah, it's it's a way to address wicked problems. It's, um, is to break them down into tiny little pieces. Yeah. And that's how I address every problem. You know, every design issue mm. and design space.
1: So, what is some advice that you would give the budding social entrepreneur or designers interested in health, listening along, but and they might have an idea and they but they need to take action to get their initiative started.
2: So the first thing, it's a prototype. <laughs> <laughs> prototype, prototype. Yeah. So and to think of the prototype as more than just a material outcome. So the the prototype is the thing that can build relationships between you and collaborators and you and clients. So if you can start to build those prototypes, and I know um, Dyson made like five hundred yes. models. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those were mechanical models, but I'm thinking of the prototype as what's the smallest thing that I can do today that will enable me to have a conversation with someone who might become invested in my idea? Yeah. And that might not necessarily be about money, but that might be about developing a friendship with someone who can mentor me or that I can share with someone, you know, so they start to become part of the narrative of the story. And so the second thing is like those using those prototypes as a way of building narrative and building story. And Mm -hmm. I think um, a lot of budding entrepreneurs are really good on social media. So then you start to – the advice I have for my students is every time you do something, make sure it's got three outcomes. So if you make a model, then turn the model into a film, turn the film into an online Engagement so just just multiply everything that you do at least three times, yeah, and then you have you kind of multiply your impact.
1: What are some of the countries that you believe are leading the charge when it comes to support and implementation of social innovation programs
2: that can transform communities and and what could we learn from them um I, I think this isn't going to be a very um, unique answer, but I think the, the Nordic countries—you <laughs> know—for education, they are the the leading
1: countries for healthcare, especially. They are,
2: yes, and they're doing really interesting things. So, like the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, you know, really these huge projects that are looking at end of life experience, but not just in a, not in a just palliative care or just. Healthcare technology way, they're bringing in artists and researchers and writers and very interdisciplinary. Yeah. Yeah, So really interdisciplinary projects that take on these big issues and recognize their complexity. And I think that's, that's something that there is a tendency or a temptation in our service design models and experience design models to reduce the complexity out of issues. You know, it's because we're solutions focused. So I think some of those, particularly at the Karolinska Institute, some of those um, projects, they really, they sit with uncertainty and they sit with complexity quite beautifully. And mm. they recognize that it is a really big issue. So we're not going to try and squeeze it into a 20 page report. Yeah. We're going to recognize that it's going to, it's going to take a lot of different skills at the table to, to make improvements.
1: Oh, excellent. So to finish off, could you please recommend three great books that you think would inspire our
2: listeners? Yes, I was thinking about this. So um Sarah Pink's Sensory Ethnography is a really good one. Um I just wanted to say that I spent the first year of my PhD reading self-development books just <laughs> yep. as a, yep. an experiment. Yeah. And um, a couple of the best ones that I came across were The Myth of Innovation yep. by Scott Birkin which is really useful and also the power of habit I found really I've read that one it's
1: very good, good.
2: it's really good because what it does is that it helps you to recognize when you're in a habit loop and how you might try and shift it yeah. and how you can create new habits that are really productive for creating great design work
1: excellent well Leah thank you very much for your insights we really appreciate them thank you so much